Amen. That's why we come together. He draws near to us in a unique way when we're gathered together as his people. I want to say uh, happy Thanksgiving to everyone. Hope that everyone had a wonderful Thanksgiving. And my wife and I often find ourselves uh, thankful for this church, thankful that the Lord brought us here, uh, thankful for all of you. Uh, it's just been a joy these last 18 months or so to get to know everybody and to be able to draw near to God along with all of you uh, and enjoy fellowship together. And so we're just really thankful uh, for all of you. Uh, we're also thankful to have a church where we do what we just did earlier this morning, where we go after one another in love if we find ourselves straying from sin. There's not a lot of churches that'll do what we just did uh, a few minutes ago and release the church to go love a brother and try to rescue him and bring him back. And so we're thankful for that as well. Now, if you have your Bibles, open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We will look at a perfect Thanksgiving verse toward the end of this passage. It says, Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Now, I'm not sure I want to think about if all my eating and drinking was to the glory of God over this last week. Uh, I'm not sure how many pieces of pie that entails to where it's still glorifying to God before uh, going past that threshold. But Paul wants us to consider what does it mean to glorify God? I think when most of us think of that question, we probably think of it in individual terms. Like, I want to glorify God. I'm going to sing praises to him. I'm going to keep my nose clean. I'm going to attend church. I'm going to go to Bible study. I'm going to study theology. I'm even going to defend the truth. That's what it means to glorify God. But what is that definition lacking? Other people. <laughs> that we tend to think about glorifying God just on an individual basis, where the thrust of this passage is, no, glorifying God means seek the good of other people. If it's a fellow believer, a brother and sister in Christ, doing all things to the glory of God means I'm going to lay aside my liberties to love a brother or to love a sister. I'm not going to make it about me. If it's an interaction with someone who's outside the church, an unbeliever, it means I'm going to lay aside every right. I want to present no obstacle to this person coming to know Jesus as their Savior. The heart of glorifying God is seeking the good of others. It's the example we have in Christ, and that's Paul's going to call us to that very imitation at the end of this chapter. And so seek the good of others. That's the heart of glorifying God. Let's pray, and then we'll look at this. Father, we confess that uh, life too often becomes about us. And we might even be pursuing good things, but we're doing it for ourselves. And we often do it at the expense of other people sometimes even at the expense of our own brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, the heart of what it means to glorify you is to live like your, your son did, who came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many, who did not seek his own interests, but he sought ours, who was willing to humble himself, lay aside every right that he had as God, and suffer a death in our place so that we might be reconciled to you. His life is a life that glorified you, his father. And that's the kind of life that we want to live. We want to imitate him and seek the good of others. 
So may we not think about glorifying you just in terms of purely an individual pursuit, but may we think of it as something that's intimately tied to the people that you put in our lives, believers and unbelievers. So meet with us, draw near to us in a special way right now as we come to your word. Shepherd us. Convict us, challenge us, encourage us so that we might do all things to your glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, seek the good of others. If you're going to seek the good of others, the first thing you have to do is abandon self-seeking. Let's look at verses 14 to 21, where Paul tells us to flee idolatry. Verse 14, chapter 10. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. He's going to talk about communion. The cup of blessing that we bless. Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break. Is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. So Paul begins this discussion about doing all things for the glory of God with the command, flee idolatry. And you might kind of think, like, idolatry? Who said anything about idolatry? Like, you mean like that Old Testament that stuff, right? Where they, like, created statues and, you know, altars to other gods, and they bowed down to those things. Like, flee idolatry? Who's doing that? That's what we typically think of as idolatry, you know, bowing down to these false gods. So we might tell Paul, like, no problem. I got this. The next time someone asks for my jewelry so that they can melt it down into a god and ask me to come and bow down and worship it, I will say, no, thank you. I'm going to flee. I'm going to flee idolatry. But Paul's talking about a lot more than golden statues. He's talking about any time that we decide to live for something other than God. And he's actually talked about this a couple times already earlier in this chapter. I want to look at a couple of the things that he referenced earlier that are in the book of Numbers. Go to Numbers chapter 21. Numbers 21. When was the last time you were in the book of Numbers? Numbers 21. These are things that Paul just mentioned, that Tim mentioned last week, earlier in chapter 10. And this is all under the heading of flea idolatry. So this is, think of these as, these are pictures of what idolatry looks like. Look at Numbers 21, verse 4. From Mount Or they set out by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And here's what idolatry looks like. And they became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses, saying, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and water, 
and we loathe this worthless food. Like, wait a minute, I thought you said there was no food. Right, this is what, when the kids said, there's nothing to eat in this whole house, and I hate everything there is to eat. But don't miss the fact that this, Paul says, this is idolatry. What? Impatience. God, why is this taking so long? Why do I have to go this way? I wish that I was dead in Egypt would be better than this. That's idolatry. Turn back to Numbers 14. Paul references this as well, Numbers 14. Numbers 14, the people are on the doorstep to the promised land. God has delivered them out of Egypt. He's done all these signs. The, the Red Sea was parted. They walked on dry ground. All of Egypt was swallowed up by the sea. And God says, I'm going to bring you to a land flowing with milk and honey, a land of blessing, everything you could possibly want. I'm going to bring you there. They get right to the doorstep. They send out some spies to go into the land. The spies come back. And they say, I don't know if this is the right land. There's a lot of giants uh, in that land. I don't know what God was talking about. I'm not sure that he's going to be able to deliver us into this land. This is how the people respond. Chapter 14. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we have died in the wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. And Paul says this is what idolatry looks like. Despair, fear, anxiety, desperation. He says, that's idolatry. Why? Because you're not trusting God. You're trusting in something else. I mean, look what happens. Verse 5, Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes. And they said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, the land which we passed through to spy it out, it is exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he'll bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only don't rebel against the Lord. Don't fear the people of the land. They're going to be bread for us. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Right? What are Joshua and Caleb saying? You can trust God. He promised. He's going to bring us into the land. It doesn't matter who's in the land. He's going to bring us. And how did the people respond in verse 10? Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. But the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will this people despise me? How long will they not believe in me? In spite of all the signs that I have done among them, I will strike them with pestilence and disinherit them, and I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. 
right? Paul says this is idolatry. Not just the golden calf, not just a false altar to some pagan god, impatience, grumbling, fear, despair. That's idolatry. God's revealing, when you experience those things, God's revealing you're serving other gods that are not me. Look at Colossians 3, 5. Colossians 3, verse 5. It says this, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and what? Covetousness, which is what? Idolatry. Paul says very, something very similar in Ephesians 5.5. 5. Covetousness is idolatry. What is coveting? I want something. I want something more than God. That's the definition of idolatry. I live for something that's not God. And the scary truth for us is as a Christian, you can find yourself serving other gods. And generally, they're not going to be golden calves. It's not going to be that obvious. And many times, we end up serving things that in and of themselves are not bad things. But those good things often become God things. And we serve them rather than serving God. Paul talked about sexual immorality. You might want marriage, intimacy, even sex. Are those bad things? No. They're wonderful things. But you can get to a point where you serve those more than you serve God. You want marriage so much that I don't really care what God says about how to pursue this. I'm going to kind of do it my own way because I want this more than him. You want comfort. You want less problems. Is it wrong to want those things? No. Are they good things? Yeah, they're good things. But you can get to a place where you want those things more than you want God. And so rather than experience pain, I don't like pain. I want comfort. I'll start looking to things to cover up the pain, even though God says it'll never work. Let's say you're married. You want respect. You're a husband, you want the respect of your wife, the respect of your kids. As a wife, maybe you want the love of your husband, the love of your children. Are those bad things? No, those are great things. But you can start serving those things more than you serve God. And if you don't get the respect or the love, then you're going to start lashing out at your spouse or your children. Or you'll begin entertaining thoughts of a different relationship where I get the respect or I get the love that I deserve. It's idolatry. We don't think of it in those terms many times, but that's exactly what it is. I want something more than God. I've swapped out God with something else. I think of Indiana Jones. This isn't the best example, you know, Raiders of the Lost Ark, because it's actually an idol that's on, like, the little throne there, the gold thing. But that's what we do. We have God is supposed to be in his rightful place on the throne, and like Indiana Jones, we sort of size up God and then we take out our little bag of sand and we kind of measure it out to be just right and then we take God off and we put the bag of sand on there. 
And all of a sudden, we're not serving God anymore. We're serving our little bag of sand. And for a moment, like in the movie, he thinks it, it worked, right? Yes, I'm getting it. I got a relationship. I got comfort. I got exactly what I wanted. And we think it worked. But then what happens? The temple starts crumbling around us. And this huge stone comes rolling after us. And it's a bigger catastrophe than we ever could have thought. You know the irony of the situation? Is that God actually wants to give us many of the things that we want? Like Caleb and Joshua, we should just tell each other, he promised he's going to do it. Don't be afraid. Don't go to that thing. Don't go to this thing. Stay on God. He will do it. He will give you everything that he promised to give. But what's our problem? No, I don't believe he can. Or I don't like the way it looks. Or I don't like that it's not happening now. And so we swap him out for the God of our choosing. When it's like, you want intimacy? He's going to give you eternal intimacy with him forever. You want love? He's going to love you every day for the rest of eternity. I mean, many times he's going to give you the earthly, those things as well. But you have eternal promises. You want comfort. You want less problems. It's not going to be long now when Christ comes back for his people and we have an eternal comfort, an eternity without problems. No more tears, no more death, no more sickness, no more saying goodbye. It's not going to be very long. So don't swap him out for something else. Now you might ask yourself the question, well, how do I know if I'm serving other gods? Well, the same way that Israel did. What are you grumbling about? What are you impatient about? What frustrates you? What makes you afraid? Those are ways that God is showing you you're serving other gods. When you feel those things, you're serving other gods. And so you need to ask yourself the question, when you feel those things, what God am I serving right now? Why am I afraid? Because I'm, I'm serving something. Why am I anxious? I'm serving something. Why am I angry? What am I serving? Because if I was serving God, I wouldn't be those things. You know, sin is never surface level, right? Sometimes we think, oh, I'm angry. Oh, I have an anger problem. I need to deal with my anger. No, sin has roots. And those roots go down to idols in our heart that are motivating us to do the things that we want to do. Think of an example. I get frustrated at my wife and kids. I mean, I don't because I'm beyond that. But let's say you do for the sake of argument. Let's say you get angry at your spouse or your children. Why are you angry? You ask yourself the question, why am I angry? What's your first response? Because my wife and kids are annoying me. That's why I'm angry. That's why I'm frustrated. It's the people around me. Now, maybe you get beyond that and you think, okay, maybe that's not it. Well, why are you angry? It's because I had a really hard day at work. It's my circumstances. It was really hard today. And I'm at my wit's end, and that's why I'm angry. Or maybe you think, well, it's just I'm only human. I have a short fuse. It's the way that God made me. Why do we sin? What's our Usually it's people make us sin. Circumstances make us sin. Our personality makes us sin. Or even God, because he put us, he made me this way, he makes us sin. 
Are any of those the reason we're sinning? No. But if we think of it only in those terms, what's our answer? I have to change the people in my life. I have to change the circumstances in my life. Or if you're a Christian, you might think, well, I've got to try harder. I've got to change my personality. I can't be angry. I need to memorize some scripture about anger. I need to pray more about this. I need to stop it. I need to try harder. Maybe you've been there. Does it work? Usually it doesn't. It doesn't work. You're like, what do, what do you mean? I've got this anger problem. I'm trying to do all these things. It doesn't work. The reason is because you don't have an anger problem. You have a serving another God problem. And until you repent of that, nothing will change. You're serving another God. When you come home and you're frustrated at your wife, your kids, it's because you're serving another God. What God are you serving? I'm serving the God of comfort and pleasure. I worked a long, hard day. I deserve to be cared for when I get home. I don't want to have to hear about everything, the hard day that my wife had. I don't want to have to deal with the kids and their bickering and their arguments. I don't deserve that. I come home to be served, not to serve. What are you serving? You're serving a God of comfort and pleasure. You're an idolater in that moment. You don't have an anger problem. You have an idolatry problem. And so what does Paul say you need to do in the face of idolatry? Flee. Run away. Repent. That's what you need. You need to repent of these things. Get away. Recognize the danger. I'm serving another God. That's a big problem. Usually we think big sins are big problems. Like, I'll never do the big sins, because those are big problems. But grumbling, impatience, anxiety, those, I mean, those are just little things. They're not really going to present any real problem. Paul says, no, those are big problems. Those emotions are revealing idolatry in your heart. And you need to run away. Repent. Say, Lord, forgive me. I've been running after other gods. I wanted my wife and my kids basically to bow down and worship me. I've been serving myself. And my Savior didn't do that. He laid down his life for me. Lord, would you forgive me and would you make me like him so that when I come home, I'm not looking to be served. Doesn't matter what kind of day I had. Doesn't matter what my wife's doing. Doesn't matter what my kids are doing. I'm here to serve because that's the way my Savior lived his life. Flee idolatry. Now the encouragement back in 1 Corinthians 10, Tim ended with this, verse 13, you can flee idolatry. Look at verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. You can flee from idolatry because God's going to always provide you a way out. You don't have to be anxious all the time. You don't have to be frustrated and angry all the time. You don't have to be impatient. God provides a way out. If you run away, if you say, God, I'm serving other gods, would you forgive me? I want to serve you. God will give you a way out. So take it. But these are strong words from Paul. I mean, these, this is not how we usually think of complaining and anxiety and despair. 
He's saying it's idolatry and you need to run away. Why is it so serious to him? I think he gives three reasons in our text why this is so serious, why idolatry is so bad. The first is this. You enjoy fellowship with Christ. That's what makes idolatry so ugly. Look at verse 15. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not participation in the body of Christ? What's Paul saying? In the Old Testament, he already referred to this earlier in chapter 10, they had spiritual food and they had spiritual drink. What's Paul saying? Your spiritual food and drink are so much better than what they had. Right? I mean, what water, or what did people drink in the desert? Water. Water from a rock. Now, that's pretty miraculous, right? I've never seen that happen. But what do you get to drink? The blood of Christ. You drink, and you're never thirsty again. They had to go back to that water day in, day out. You have something that satisfies you where you will never thirst again. You drink from the blood that flowed down from the head and the hands and the feet and the side of the Son of God. That's what you get to drink. How about the bread? What did God's people eat in the desert? Manna from heaven. Pretty miraculous, right? I've never seen that happen. Just bread appears out of nowhere every day that I get to eat. But what do you get to eat? The body of Christ body that was broken on the cross for you so that your sins could be forgiven. That's the spiritual food that you get to eat every time that we come together and celebrate the Lord's Supper. You enjoy fellowship with the crucified and risen Messiah. I mean, he talks about participation, right? The word there, participation, that he mentions twice, it's fellowship. We have fellowship with Christ when we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. It's, a, it's not just remembrance, right? It's not just, hey, you remember that guy who lived and he died for us on the cross a few thousand years ago? No, Paul says you participate with him in communion. That there's a real interaction that takes place between you and Jesus when you celebrate communion. Not transubstantiation, right? Not that the bread and the Juice are becoming the body of Christ. Not even a transaction where you're somehow being infused with divine grace when you take in the bread and the juice, but no, but a real fellowship with Jesus when we celebrate communion together. He's with us in a special way. He invited us into his presence to celebrate this and to remember him. We participate with him. And that is so much better then manna from heaven and water from a rock. But if our fellowship is so much better, then our idolatry is so much worse than theirs. I mean, you think about the Old Testament, you can almost understand it, right? They had sort of a forward-looking idolatry. Like, God promised, I'm going to bring you into this land. It's going to flow with milk and honey. I'm going to meet all your needs. You're going to be my people. You're, we're going to be together. But it hadn't happened yet. So you can almost understand, like, the impatience. 
right? The grumbling, like, when is this going to happen? Why hasn't it happened yet? Moses, you don't know what you're doing. We've been wandering around for 40 years. You can almost understand it. But our idolatry is backwards looking. He's already done everything he says he was going to do. He sent his son to pay for our sins. We're on the other side of the cross. Like, he's not just promising us deliverance. He has delivered us. He's not just promising us eternity. He's actually secured it for us. So our idolatry, I mean, it's so much more ugly than even the Old Testament. We look at the Old Testament like, how could you people? It's like they'd be looking at us like, how could you? Like, Jesus came. He laid down his life on the cross. How could you possibly do this? Because sin is deceptive. That's how we could do it. But if you think of it, it's like we are, mem- we are part of the new covenant. Our hearts have been changed. Our hearts of stone have been removed. We have hearts of flesh. We have a spirit dwelling in us. Why am I impatient? Why am I angry? Why am I fearful? Why am I anxious? I live on this side of the cross. My heart should be overflowing with thankfulness all the time. And yet we can find ourselves serving other gods. Another reason Paul gives that idolatry is so bad is because it actually involves us fellowshipping with demons. Look at verse 19. What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that when pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. And I don't want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. What's the issue? Food's not the issue. Food food is food. Paul already said that. Idols aren't even the issue because we know there are no idols. There are no false gods. There are no real other gods. So that's not the issue. What's the issue? That when you worship something other than God, you are in fellowship with demons. And demons are real. That's what Paul's saying. And that is something to be worried about and to not want to do. Now again, we think idolatry, we think golden calf, altars, yeah, when I do that, I'd be fellowshipping with demons. What did Paul say? No. When you're anxious, when you give in to anxiety, when you give in to fear, when you give in to anger, when you give in to frustration, you're serving other gods and you're fellowshipping with demons when you do that. That's what he's saying. Anytime you serve anything other than God, you are under demonic influence. And saying, you don't want that. And don't think for a second that you can enjoy the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons, the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Because not only is it impossible to do that, but the third reason Paul gives why idolatry is so bad is that God will deal with you. Look at verse 22. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Why should you flee idolatry? Because if you don't, God will deal with you. And that's what Paul's argument has been this whole chapter so far. Like, look around. It's not like I'm just, these aren't idle threats. 
23,000 people died in one day because they were serving other gods instead of the true God. Two million people died in the wilderness. Why? Because they were serving other gods, not the true God. Who did those things? Who killed those people? The enemy? No, God did. He's jealous for his glory. He's jealous for your good. So if you're not seeking him, that's not good for you. And so he's going to deal with you out of love for you. And so that's why I say pray for Chad. Hebrews says that it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And I think he's talking to believers. God's going to deal with his people. Paul's going to say, we just read it in chapter, later on in chapter 11, many of you are weak and sick and a number have died because you took the Lord's Supper in an unworthy way. So it's not like, oh yeah, that's how God dealt with them in the Old Testament. That was scary God, angry God. But now in the New Testament, he's all love, he's all good. He's going to forgive me all the time. Anytime I sin, he'll forgive me. That's true. But this God doesn't play either. And if you fool around with sin, if you make it your life's ambition to serve other gods instead of him, he might take you out. He says he already did it. In this church, he's already done it in Corinthians. You know, it's interesting, when Paul tells them to flee idolatry, I don't think he's primarily saying, flee because demons are scary. I think he's saying, flee because God is scary. And he will deal with his people. And so we need to abandon self-seeking. We need to see idolatry for what it truly is. Not golden calves, but anxiety, frustration, anger, impatience, grumbling. That's idolatry. And we need to flee from those things. So that's all just what we need to flee away from. But what's even more interesting is that the, the opposite of that, what does it mean? Like if you're fleeing from serving other gods, what is it, what's the positive? The positive, we might say, I would think the positive would be serve God, which is true. But Paul doesn't say it in those terms. He actually says it in terms of seek other people's good. One of the other problems of idolatry is that it's inherently self-seeking. So what's the antidote? Seek other people's good instead of yourself. So let's look at what he says. Verse 23. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor or the good of the other. Paul says this is the antidote for idolatry. Seek other people's good. The Corinthians were living by this motto, all things are lawful. I can do whatever I want. And if you don't like it, tough. But Paul says that's not the motto we should live by. Paul says, sure, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not everything builds up. Your standard is no longer, is it allowed? Your standard is, does this build up a brother or sister in Christ? Or does this provide me an opportunity to preach the gospel to someone who doesn't know it yet? The ultimate question is not, is this allowed? The ultimate question is, is this helpful? What are you seeking? 
not seeking my own interests. I'm seeking the good of the other. Again, this is surprising to me, right? The opposite of idolatry in Paul's mind? Like, what would we say the opposite of idolatry is? Bible study, prayer, fasting, scripture memory, all good things. But what does Paul say is the opposite of idolatry? Seeking other people's good. Reminds me of when Jesus talked to the Pharisees, and the Pharisees asked him a question. What's the greatest commandment? Jesus said what you'd expect Jesus to say. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. I bet the Pharisees thought was, that's right, and I do that. I love the Lord. I know his word. I try to do it. And he's probably thinking, okay, I got it. And then he's walking away, and Jesus says, and the second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. And the Pharisees probably think, I didn't ask for the second greatest commandment. I just asked for the first greatest commandment. Jesus says, I can't give you, if I tell you just the first, you think you have already done it. But if he give you the second, you'll know you haven't done the first. If you did the first, you would do the second. You don't truly love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength unless you're seeking the good of other people. I think as Christians, we have a danger of become. we have an idol of sanctification where we think, I'm going to be the wonderful Christian. I'm going to know my Bible better than anybody else. I'm going to know how to counsel people with the Word of God. I'm going to study. I'm going to memorize Scripture. And we start to think, like, I am, I'm doing amazing. My life glorifies God. I know His Word. I do all, you know, I do all these things. And what do we leave out? People. Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. Paul says, flee idolatry and don't seek your own interests, seek the good of someone else. Think of the Matrix, that movie, right? It's like we're so stuck in a reality that's not even true. We think that life is all about us. We're just stuck there. Everything we think about relates to us. I want to grow as a Christian. Why? For my own benefit, not for anyone else's. Or why is this person doing this to me? And we get offered this opportunity in the gospel to say, are you going to take the blue pill and just go back to the way it was, living for yourself? Or are you going to take the red pill and leave the world of self-seeking and become interested in the good of others? It's going to be uncomfortable. It's going to be difficult. You're not going to sort of know how to get your bearings right away. But it's real. And it's the way you should be living your life. Paul gives a couple examples here. Verse 25. He says, Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. So I think here he's just saying, if you have just a purely personal decision, enjoy your freedom. Right? If it's just pure, I'd be go to the grocery store, what food do I want to buy? Buy whatever you want. Just enjoy it. But as soon as your circumstances involve other people, you need to think differently. Look at verse 27. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you're disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. What's he saying? I think he's saying don't let there be any barrier to the gospel. Right? You go to someone's house, you're thinking like, oh, they, they put food down in front of you. Like, is this organic? <laughs> is this free range? Have these animals been ethically treated? 
what are you doing? You're setting up barriers for fellowship, right? I'm not going to eat your food. I'm not really going to fellowship with you unless you have the same views I do about food and animals. And Paul's saying, don't do that. They put a plate down. I don't care what it looks like. You eat it, <laughs> right? Because I don't want there to be a barrier to the gospel. Eat whatever they put before you. Don't ask questions. Why? So that you have opportunity to tell them the gospel. Don't let them ever think that they need to change X, Y, Z before they can even hear the gospel. That's what Paul's saying. Because he doesn't seek his own interests anymore. He seeks the good of the other. I mean, can you imagine what God could do through us if we went into every situation thinking, how can I seek the good of the people in this room? Every interaction when you come on a Sunday, how can I build up my brother? That I don't think about me. Is anyone going to meet my need? Why did they do this? Why are that? I'm annoyed at that. No, I go into every situation with a brother or sister in Christ thinking, how can I build up this person? Every interaction with family members over the holidays, I'm not thinking like, oh, I can't believe I have to go to this. But I'm thinking, no, how can I be a light in a dark place? How can I be salt? How can I live for their good, not my comfort? Every situation with coworkers or classmates, every situation when you're walking, wherever you are, find yourself in the world, that you have a mindset, I'm going to seek the good of those around me. Whether they're around me for one minute or for 50 years, I'm going to make it my life's ambition to seek their good. That's what Paul means when he says, do all things for the glory of God. He says, verse 31, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Eating and drinking, what's he talking about? He's talking about meat sacrificed to idols. He's talking about communion. He's not just saying, like, in any mundane situation of life, whether you're drinking a cup of coffee or whether you're enjoying a hamburger, do it for the glory of God. That's not what he's saying. He's saying the way that you think about your liberties— the way that you think about your rights, you need to think about others more than yourself. That's what he's saying. This isn't a Thanksgiving verse after all. This is a verse about wanting to see the gospel go as far as it can go. Verse 32, Paul says, essentially become a people pleaser. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I, listen to this, I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they might be saved. I mean, what an attitude. I mean, the world's attitude is, I'm going to do what I'm going to do, and if you don't like it, tough. And sometimes as Christians, we can think that. Like, I'm going to do whatever I want. The world can't tell me what to do, and, blah, 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 and you can't tell, you can't talk to me like that. Like, I'm blessed and highly favored. You can't talk to me like that. And Paul says, no, that's not our attitude. I want to please everyone in everything I do, and I don't seek my own advantage, but that of the many. These are contrasting views of freedom that Paul's giving us. Some think freedom is I get to do whatever I want. Paul says that's not freedom. True freedom is I don't need to pursue anything for my own interests, and I'm free to love and to serve others regardless of how they treat me. That's freedom. That's what Christ provides. 
Paul had the mindset he just wanted to imitate his Savior. That's how he ends verse 11, or chapter 11, verse 1. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Where did Paul get the idea that I'm going to lay aside my rights, I'm going to lay aside my privileges to serve the many that they may be saved? He got it from his Savior. Turn to Isaiah 53, and we'll end with this. Isaiah 53. This is the Old Testament version of Philippians 2 that we looked at a couple weeks ago. This is what our Savior did for us, what he willingly did for us when we didn't deserve any of it. Isaiah 53, verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men. He's the eternal God. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. But surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's our Savior. Look what he experienced. Verse 7, he was oppressed. He was afflicted. He didn't deserve it at all. But he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Jump down to verse 10. It was the will of the Lord to crush him, and he has put him to grief. Why would he do that? Why would the Lord crush his son? Why would the son willingly go? Verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Why? Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. That's why Paul says, I don't seek my advantage. I seek the advantage of the many. The many that Christ laid down his life for. The many that he shed his blood for. I don't seek my own advantage, I seek their advantage. And I want to be the avenue by which they come to know their Savior who laid down his life for them. And how are they going to know unless I'll lay down my life for them? And I'll put my liberties and my rights aside and be used by God to save many. And so what are you thankful for this Thanksgiving? Turkey? Maybe. Eternal life? Yes, of course. Forgiveness of sins? Absolutely. But how did you come to enjoy those benefits? 
I think ultimately what we want to be most thankful for is that we have a Savior who is willing to lay aside his rights and his privileges and his liberties to save us. That he sought our interests above his own. And that it was his delight to glorify God through serving those that don't deserve it. And he didn't think about in terms of what's lawful, what's allowed. He thought in terms of what's going to be helpful, what's going to build this people up, what's going to save them from their sin. And we should say that we would want to be imitators of him, like Paul. Let's pray. Father, help us. Help us to abandon our self-seeking. It sneaks up on us all the time. A little impatient thought. Frustration. A little bit of worry or fear. Anger. And we might brush them off as just little things. They don't really matter too much. But they're little warning lights in our soul saying we're serving other gods. And we don't want to serve any other God because of what Christ has done for us. How would we ever serve another God than the one who would shed his blood for us and rescue us and redeem us and bring us into his family? Father, I pray for Chad. I pray, Lord, that you'd give him repentance. Repentance is a gift that you give. And I pray that you would give it to him. And I pray that he would come to his senses quickly it is a terrifying thing to fall into your hands. But if you restore him, it's a better place to be. Even in your terrifying hands, it's a better place to be than out in the world, having to bear the weight of his own sin. So deal with him. We pray it doesn't have to be severe, but if it has to be severe, that you would do it severely to bring him back. And I pray that we'd go after him as your church. If we know him, that we would text him, we'd call him, we'd go to his house and we'd call him to repentance, and that we would be able to celebrate together when that lost sheep is returned. And I pray that that would be our mindset in all of our relationships, that we don't go to, into every situation just thinking about, do I want to do this, or I don't want to do this, I wish I didn't have to do this, but that we'd have the mindset of our Savior, who didn't seek his own interests, but sought ours. That we'd go into situations with our brothers and sisters in Christ, looking to build them up, not tear them down. That we'd go into situations with those in the world looking to save them and seek them and not present obstacles to them knowing the gospel. And I pray that you'd do great things. Thank you for this church. Thank you for each person that's here. Thank you for the work that you've done this year of all the new members, new baptisms, new deacons. You've done amazing things this year. The year's not over. May we see you do even greater things in this last month. And do it through us. Not in spite of us, but through us. And that you would get all the praise. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.